Flames climbed high into the sky just below a thick plume of black smoke one morning in Coos Bay, Oregon. The beautiful beach town was overshadowed by the stern section of a grounded ship that was now ablaze, with the smell of napalm and diesel fuel singeing the hairs in everyone's noses. The residents were beside themselves. This was just madness. Only just recently the ship had washed ashore, and its chronicles were only just beginning. Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, my name is Eleanor. Just a quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story may be disturbing to some, so viewer discretion is advised. Okay everyone, let's get into it. MV New Carissa was a dry bulk freighter specializing in transporting wood chips, which were then used for paper pulp production. Though she was a Philippine flagged vessel, she was built by Imabari Shipbuilding in Imabari, Japan. She was ordered in September of 1988 by her owner's Green Atlas Shipping out of Panama, and her construction would start the following year. Her port of registry was Manila in the Philippines, which is why she is a Philippine-flagged ship, even though she was technically owned by a company in Panama, which was a subsidiary of the Japanese shipping company Nippon Yusin Kaisha. Her operator and manager was another Japanese company, Taiheo Kaiyun Company Limited. Built as yard number 1172, MV New Carissa was an all-steel ship that was laid down on February 28, 1989. Before we get further into her career, let's check out the specs. MV New Carissa was a wood chips carrier like we mentioned earlier, and she had several tonnages. She displaced 36,524 gross tons, which is a non-linear measure of a ship's overall internal volume, 16,524 net tons, which is a dimensionless index calculated from the total molded volume of the ship's cargo spaces, and 44,527 deadweight tons, which is a measure of how much weight a ship can carry, and this includes cargo, fuel, fresh water, ballast water, provisions, passengers, and crew. For cargo capacity, she was able to carry 3,242,400 cubic feet or 91,814 cubic meters of cargo. In imperial measurements, she was 639 feet and 5 inches long, had a beam of 105 feet and 8 inches wide, and a draft of 35 feet and 5 inches deep. In metric measurements, that's 194.89 meters long, a beam of 32.2 meters wide, and a draft of 10.8 meters deep. She had a crew of 26 operating her, all of them being Philippine nationals, including Captain Benjamin Morgado. Let's take a look at her propulsion setup. For propulsion, MV New Carissa was powered by an 8,089 horsepower or 6,032 kilowatt Mitsubishi Saltzer 6RTA52 direct drive diesel engine. This engine fed one single shaft fixed pitch propeller, and with the setup, MV New Carissa could reach average service speeds of 13.5 knots, which is 25 kilometers per hour or 15.5 miles per hour. For identification, her IMO number was 8716136, and her call sign was DVUI. We do have one more piece of information that you need to know before we continue her story, and that is insurance information. 
MV New Carissa's protection and indemnity insurance was provided by the Britannia Steamship Insurance Association Limited. Her certificate of financial responsibility, which is required by the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 and included $23 million of liability insurance, was through the Ship Owners Insurance and Guarantee Company Limited of Hamilton, Bermuda. Keep this in mind for later. MV New Carissa was launched on June 22, 1989, being completed on August 30, 1989, and passing her sea trials shortly after that. I don't have much information on her, especially her career before she met her fate on the Oregon coast. From what I can tell, she was making a trans-Pacific journey from Japan to Coos Bay, Oregon to get a load of wood chips. I don't know if this is her normal route, but what I can tell you is this was no normal voyage. The grounding of MV New Carissa would prove disastrous for the Oregon coast. But at least this video is unproblematic. If you're enjoying this video, leave me a like, subscribe to the channel for more content, and let me know down in the comments section below. Okay, let's get into the disaster. In the beginning of 1999, MV New Carissa was bound for the port of Coos Bay to pick up a load of wood chips. Unfortunately, there was a fierce storm lying in wait at the coast as she approached in early February. On February 3rd, 1999, the local bar pilot advised MV New Carissa not to enter the harbor because of high seas and strong winds in the area. And so, Captain Mogado heeded this advice and ordered the ship to drop anchor 1.7 nautical miles off the coast to wait out the storm. According to a later United States Coast Guard review of the incident, the chain was unfortunately too short, and this combined with 20 to 25 knot winds, which is 37 to 46 kilometers per hour and 22 to 28 miles per hour, her anchor dragged along the sea floor and pushed the vessel closer and closer to the coast. Because of a severe lack of watchkeeping and poor navigational techniques, the crew of MV New Carissa didn't notice she was drifting in the heavy seas, with each wave rocking her closer and closer to the beach. The crew did notice the ship was moving at some point, and they tried to hoist the anchor to get away from the shore. However, raising the anchor and maneuvering in the heavy seas proved difficult. By the time the anchor was raised up, it was too late for MV New Carissa. She ran aground on the beach 2.7 miles or 4.5 kilometers north of the entrance to Coos Bay. None of the crew were injured and they attempted to refloat her, however, it was useless. Unfortunately, the environment would suffer the most from this incident, as two of the ship's five fuel tanks began to leak fuel out onto the beach, eventually adding up to around 70,000 US gallons of Bunker C fuel oil and diesel on the beach and in the water, leaving an oily, slick residue. After the ship grounded herself, the crew reported it. Recovery operations were immediately put into motion as soon as the grounding was reported by the crew, though there were several factors that made it incredibly complicated. In order to deal with this complicated situation, representatives from the state of Oregon, the Coast Guard, and rescue party operations formed a unified command for the rescue and recovery operations. Initial attempts to rescue the ship were thwarted by the foul weather, and this included the crew's attempt to use her own power to save her. Tugboat assistance wasn't available yet, with only one tugboat available locally, but she wasn't able to make it across Coos Bay Bar because of safety and weather concerns. It's also possible this tugboat wouldn't have been able to rescue the massive new Carissa, but we'll never know for certain. The next near salvage tugboat, powerful enough to tow the new Carissa, aptly named Salvage Chief, was docked in her home port of Astoria, which was 200 miles or 320 kilometers north of Coos Bay on the Columbia River. 
This journey was a 24-hour voyage for the tug, and Salvage Chief had not sailed in over a year, so it took 18 hours to gather a crew, fuel, and provisions for the vessel. Once she departed Astoria, she ran into yet another problem. It was damn near impossible to cross the Columbia River Bar, nicknamed the Graveyard of the Pacific for reason, unable to cross the river for another two days. Salvage Chief arrived on site on February 8, 1999, four days after the accident. Continued heavy seas pushed MV New Carissa further up onto the shore. While Salvage Chief was on her way, there were other operations already taking place. Smith International and Salvage Master, two salvage companies, had technical teams working in tandem with the United States Coast Guard since February 5, 1999 on plans to refloat the vessel. However, these plans were set aside in order to focus on preventing a massive oil spill that looked like it was on the horizon. To make matters worse, Salvage Chief could not reach MV New Carissa with her tow gear, making her voyage feel null and void. On February 10th, something horrible would happen to MV New Carissa. She suffered a major structural failure on February 10, 1999, when her hull breached near the engine room, and this flooded the engines with seawater, rendering them useless. The ship's insurers would go ahead and declare her a total loss, and as a result, she was no longer salvageable, gaining a new title, a shipwreck. If you're on an audio-only format like Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, make sure to subscribe for more episodes and leave us a five-star review since it helps us reach more listeners like you. Check out our community tab on YouTube to keep up with us, and we are also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Okay, back to the story. Now that she was officially a shipwreck, the operations shifted from a rescue and recovery to wreck recovery and oil spill prevention. The oil in the ship's five fuel tanks was still a major concern, especially since it had already leaked oil out into the ocean and onto the shore, and the fact that the ship was literally falling apart on the beach in the enormous waves. Now, the way they are going to try to mitigate this disaster baffles me. Let me know in the comments if you've ever heard of this happening in another disaster. The Unified Command was going to burn the fuel in the fuel tanks to burn off the oil. They first attempted this on February 10th, with napalm and other incendiary devices being used to ignite the fuel. However, only one of the diesel fuel tanks burned effectively with this method, with smoke climbing into the sky and the ship's blaze lighting up the coast. The next day, on February 11th, the U.S. Navy had explosive experts go on and place 39 shaped charges to breach the top of the fuel tanks within the cargo holds. After this, 602 U.S. gallons or 2,280 liters of napalm and almost 397 pounds or 180 kilograms of plastic explosives were employed to try to ignite the fuel on the ship. The stress from the fire and the continued bad weather would cause the ship to break in half sometime around midnight on February 11th. The ship would burn for approximately 33 hours, burning into February 12th, 1999 as seen in this picture. This is the exact same day that I was born. February 12th, 1999 was the beginning for me, and our patrons have been supporting us since the beginning of this channel. This episode wouldn't be possible without our lovely patrons. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com shipwrecksunday to join. Okay, let's see what happened with the salvage. Additional weather issues would further delay the process, and on February 26th, 1999, salvers made some headway. They managed to float the bow section, which was 440 feet or 134 meters long, and they started to float it out to sea for disposal. You heard me right, not scrapping it, just sinking it in the Oregon Coast surf. 
By March 1st, the tugboat Sea Victory towed the bow from the shore out into open water, first followed by OSRV Oregon Responder, an oil skimmer. Sadly, another horrific storm sent Oregon Responder retreating back to port, and as Sea Victory got around 50 miles or 80 kilometers off the coast, the tow line broke. The bow section remained bobbing in the waves for roughly 14 hours before it ran aground near Waldport, Oregon on March 3rd. It was roughly 80 miles or 129 kilometers north from the original incident. On March 8th, the bow was successfully refloated once more. And by March 11th, it was towed 280 miles or 451 kilometers away from the coast by Sea Victory and a second tug, Natoma. Where the bow section presently is, is roughly 10,000 feet or 3,048 meters deep. And so the bow was sunk by two Navy vessels, the submarine USS Bremerton and the destroyer USS David R. Ray. They used 400 pounds or 180 kilograms of high explosives tied to the bow, detonating it in a thunderous boom. Though this wasn't enough to sink the bow. 69 rounds of fire from David R. Ray's 5-inch or 127mm guns poked holes in the bow like Swiss cheese. Though this still wasn't enough. Somehow, even after 40 minutes, the bow remained afloat, and another storm was on its way. Bremerton resorted to the last thing they could think of to finish off the bow. A Mark 48 torpedo was launched at the underside of the bow, piercing it deep within its belly. After 10 minutes, the bow flooded and sank stern first, taking its remaining oil with it to the bottom of the Pacific. The bow section has been handled, but we still have the stern section, which is going to prove more problematic than the stubbornness of the bow. The stern section was still grounded and didn't seem to show signs of leaking oil since most of it had already leaked or burned. Some of the oil that was still in the cargo hold was skimmed or pumped out, and in June of 1999, Green Atlas awarded a ship-breaking contract to John John Marine Company and Fred Devine Diving and Salvage. This means exactly what you think. They were sent in to break apart the stern and get rid of it. The two companies were successful in removing about a third of the stern, but when they tried to take apart the rest of it or take it out to sea to sink it, they failed, and so they paused for the winter of 1999. As Y2K loomed over the world, the stern of MV New Carissa awaited her fate in the spring of 2000 when work would resume, continuing into 2001. In 2001, Green Atlas hired a separate salvage expert that asserted that the stern should be left where it was because it would create more of a problem than it would fix. Later, the state of Oregon would accuse Green Atlas of cutting corners to save money on an expensive salvage operation and a legal battle would ensue. However, we aren't quite there yet. We still have a stern section that, in 2024, is no longer on the beach of Coos Bay, and so how was it removed? Well, the state of Oregon was still keen on removing the ship from the beach, despite failed attempts. In 2006, a lawsuit between the ship's owners and Oregon was settled, removing legal obstacles that stood in the way of removal and thus providing funds to take care of the new Carissa. The next obstacle was the fact that the stern had sat for seven years, and so she'd sunk into the wet sand about 20 to 30 feet below the sand line, which is 6 to 9 meters. In June of 2008, Oregon finally had legislative approval to start removing the stern section. The dismantling of MV New Carissa's stern was estimated to cost $18 million, and this budget had been approved in September of 2006 by the State Legislative Emergency Board. Originally, the project was to start in 2007, however, negotiations weren't completed until 2008, and it was undertaken during the spring and summer months due to surf and weather conditions being ideal during this time. 
the Oregon Department of Lands proposed a $16.4 million contract to Titan Maritime Company, a subsidiary of Crowley Maritime Corporation, and ultimately it was accepted. And so they'd be the one to dismantle the vessel. They employed two large jack-up barges, Carlissa A and Carlissa B, which is ironic given the name of the ship they were going to dismantle. The barges are set in place, a cable car system was installed to help crews move their equipment to and from the beach, and the barges allowed the crew to access the wreck from 40 feet or 12 meters above the tide. So now what? Well, finally the project would begin. The crew cut new Carissa into movable chunks, then lifting them to the barges with cranes, and the cutting process was mostly done by July 31st, 2008. And so then the company shifted focus. Now it was time to pull the stern out from the sand, which was taken inch by inch. The project's manager was happily confident that they'd meet the October 1st removal deadline, and by September 2008, it was looking good. They had most of the wreck off the beach, with no parts of the ship visible above the water and only a few small pieces remaining in the water still. On October 12, 2008, Carlissa A and Carlissa B were relocated and the removal was finished by November of 2008. And with that, MV New Carissa was gone. Of course, before the wreck was removed, there were some that opposed the removal, mostly because of her potential as a tourist attraction. Oregon coast towns heavily rely on tourism in the summer to boost their economy, and having a shipwreck on your shores really helps with that. My personal favorite cities to visit on the coast are Newport and Lincoln City. They have their fair share of shipwrecks I'd like to cover as well, and if you'd like to see that, let me know. We desperately need to address the elephant in the room, the environmental impact. What the heck happened with all of that oil? Well, the wreck of MV New Carissa was devastating for the Oregon coast resulting in one of the most serious oil spills to affect the state of Oregon, and the worst since the 1984 oil spill near Longview, Washington. That oil spill had dumped over 200,000 U.S. gallons of oil into the Columbia River. Oil spills aren't common near Oregon, and that's because the state doesn't have significant oil refinery facilities, so oil tankers don't often dock in Oregon ports. According to analysis done by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services, over 3,000 shorebirds and seabirds were killed by the oil spill from MV New Carissa, and this varied over 50 species. Among these birds were tragically 262 threatened marbled murrelets and between four and eight endangered western snowy plovers. Other animals were killed too, including fish, shellfish, and harbor seals. Multiple beaches were sullied, with tar balls washing up for more than a month after the spill. Despite my earlier criticism of the burning of oil and how it affects air pollution, I will give credit where credit is due. Removal of the bow section and the burning of this fuel prevented a far worse spill from happening, with Captain Mike Hall of the Coast Guard stating that, quote, at least 82% of the oil on board New Carissa never reached the wildlife or the pristine shoreline of Oregon's coast. That, my friends, makes me happy since I do love visiting the coast. The bow section's oil also did not have a significant impact on the environment due to it being sunk onto a deep continental shelf, and so the lower temperatures at these depths would have solidified the oil left on the ship. And with the ship removed from the shore, any fleeting concerns about the environmental impact of the shipwreck on the beach could be put to rest. There's a lot of litigation that happened, a lot of suing, and most of these parties were successful and thus were compensated. But let's get into what we all want to know. Were the crew found negligent? The short answer is no. Despite the fact that the captain's error was found to be the primary cause of the wreck, and the captain and the entire crew were sent back to the Philippines without being charged. Part of me accepts that it was an accident. 
and part of me is rolling my eyes at the severe lack of accountability. MV New Carissa is a fascinating story that really caught my eye. Thank goodness no one was injured or killed, though I definitely want to say rest in peace to all of the wildlife killed in the oil spill after the fact. It is still tragic. As for her impact, she's faded into the obscurity, mostly just a forgotten scar on an otherwise flawless coast. If you liked that story and wanted to hear more interesting stories, check out our Ocean Liner playlist in the cards. Stay tuned next week for the beginning of Warship Month and the story of USS Peary, a destroyer that was sunk in action near Australia in World War II. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.